All right, good morning. Today, we've got a big chapter ahead of us. Are you ready? We need energy. We need courage. We need strength for what we're about to face. Are you ready? All right, we're going to read Mark 13. Uh, open your Bibles if you want. Go ahead and get them ready. Some of you may just want to listen. That's up to you. Uh, Mark 13, it takes place a couple of weeks before, not just a couple of weeks before. Right now, we are a couple of weeks before Easter. Mark 13 doesn't take place a couple weeks before Easter. It takes place a couple days before Jesus was arrested and crucified. This whole chapter is what we'll call a red letter chapter. It's full of Jesus's words. And as we read this chapter today, it's really important to understand right off the top that Jesus is doing two things. First, he's giving a really long, complicated answer to a simple question using the most dramatic language possible, as Jesus tends to do. The second thing he's doing is describing a specific event that happened almost 2,000 years ago for us. And we're gonna see a little later why that's really important. So his answer to the disciples' question, it's intense. It's so intense that it's really easy for us as we read it to get bogged down in these fantastic images and ideas. But this type of literature, it's meant to be seen as a whole. See the big picture so that you don't miss the point. Okay, and that's the goal for today. We wanna see the big picture so that we can understand how an event that happened 2,000 years ago still has meaning for us today. There's a deep truth in this for us today. So we're gonna read most of chapter 13. I'm gonna interrupt us, offer us some context along the way. This might be more like a Bible study for a lot of it, but I promise I'll find a way to get to some preaching eventually, all right? So let's pray before we read. Father, uh, we, we are all coming to you and to this place. We're coming today, um, we're coming from all over the place, um, just from the busyness of life, but some of us from some really intense places. Um, we're coming to you mourning loss. Some of us are coming to you preparing to mourn loss. Some of us are coming just from hardships and trauma that happens from day to day. Some of us are coming from places of real joy. So to be in a room full of people that are coming from all these different places, God, we need your spirit and we need your presence to center us and to bring us all to the same place so that we can hear the word as it's read, that we can receive the gospel as it's proclaimed and that we can see clearly what we are supposed to do in response. So as always, we pray that you would open our minds, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we can receive this and that you would use our hands and our feet and our mouths to do the work that you've called us to do when we leave this place today. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Mark 13, verse one, as Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones and the walls. And Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. So you're gonna see this more clearly in a minute, but it's really easy to misunderstand this entire chapter, to read it, to assume that Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end of the world, about his second coming. That's why those two verses are so important. We need to understand them in order to understand the context of the really intense and dramatic language that follows. 
So we have to start by recognizing that everything Jesus is about to say, he's referring to a specific event. But that event is not his second coming. Like in case that's unfamiliar language for some of you, the second coming refers to Jesus' future return, which we are all still waiting for. The day when he comes back once and for all, bringing his kingdom in all of its fullness along with him. Now Christ's second coming is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. So there is no doubt that he's coming again. The last words from the last chapter of the last book in the Bible, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And the writer of Revelation says what we all would say, amen, come on. (laughs) But that's not what Mark 13 is about. Listen to it again. Jesus was leaving the temple that day and he says, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone left on top of another. Mark 13 is about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, 40 years after he said these words, 40 years after his death and his resurrection. Now listen, this chapter is much more than just a history lesson. There is deep, important truth for us today. But you need to keep that event in the front of your mind as we continue reading the first part of this chapter. Okay, are you with me? Got the context? You awake? I told you what happens if you go to sleep. All right, verse three. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, tell us, when will all this happen? What's this? The destruction of the temple. What's a sign? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pain. There's more still to come. So his answer begins, his indirect answer begins with some hard truths, but it's actually meant to calm their anxiety. He's telling them, watch out, but don't be deceived. When you hear people talking about war and earthquake and famine, don't be alarmed. And y'all, this is really important. Like it'll always seem as if the world's falling apart. Why is that? Because it is. We said that at the 9.30 service and there was a sweet kid over here who goes, what? (laughs) Hard truths. (laughs) It's always gonna seem like the world's falling apart because it is. But every creak and crack isn't a sign that the end is here. It's just more evidence that the world is broken. So don't be deceived and don't be alarmed. Now, we're gonna get into this more later, but listen, when you're watching the news, Don't be alarmed. It will always look like the end is near because the world is fractured and broken. And it might seem like it's worse now than it's ever been. Maybe. I guarantee you that the disciples felt the exact same way about the time in which they lived. So either way, be sober, stay awake, be alert, stay focused, And stick to the task. Get to work. 
And we'll talk more about that later. So Jesus is telling them the end is not here yet, but the chaos surely is. And he gives them some encouragement through the chaos. He says this in verse nine. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must be preached to all the nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what you'll say. Just say what God tells you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. He's telling his followers, whatever happens, the gospel must be preached. And you'll have a chance to preach it. But it might be at your own trial. You see, a disciple follows Jesus. Sometimes, like Jesus, all the way to their own trial and persecution. But even so, preach. And don't worry about what you'll say. Don't worry if you think you don't know everything or have all the answers. The Spirit's gonna speak for you. What you really need to say, it's already in you anyway. Just be ready to speak. So yes, the world seems as if it's falling apart and it might get worse. Watch, pay attention, stand firm, and don't worry. And no complaining because there's a lot of work left to do. So after that, Jesus, he begins to now more directly answer their question. Uh, Not directly, of course, that's not his style, but he more directly begins to answer their question. Remember, they asked, when is all this gonna take place? Uh, He's been preparing them for the battles leading up to the main event. Now he's gonna talk about the main event itself, the destruction of the temple. So this is verse 14. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, and then there's a little note, let the reader understand. Mark is telling us we need to pay attention to figure out what that little phrase means, the abomination that causes desolation. When you see it where it does not belong, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now. It'll never be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. I told you, dramatic and intense language, right? All right, so this language, the abomination that causes desolation. It's a biblical reference to the book of Daniel, but it's also a historical reference. In 187 BC, about 200 years before Jesus says these words, there was a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. (laughs) The name Antiochus Epiphanes, it literally means God revealed. (laughs) Subtle, right? So his name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He invades Jerusalem. He slaughters and enslaves Jews in their own land. He sets up idols to other gods, even kills and feasts on pigs, right in the heart of the temple in Jerusalem. It was a desecration of the temple for sure. Jesus is using that as a reference. And he's saying what will soon happen in the temple, it's worse than a desecration. He calls it an abomination that will lead to Israel's desolation. 
When the temple was destroyed, God's judgment came down on his image bearers because they had fundamentally lost their way, turned their back on God. We've seen this all throughout the Gospel of Mark. As early as Mark chapter four, religious and political leaders are scheming to crucify Israel's Messiah rather than proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. They were so far from God, they couldn't even recognize him as he stood right there in their midst. The destruction of the temple was God's judgment, part of God's plan. Jew and Gentile both played a part in it. So Jesus tells his disciples, when you see it happening, run. Don't stand and fight. Now that might sound weak, but he says run, don't stand and fight because it's not a Roman army you're fighting. It's not, an, a relig- it's not the religious establishment that you're fighting, it's God himself. This destruction is part of his plan. So don't seek refuge in his temple because there's not gonna be one stone left on top of another. There will be nowhere to hide. Run for the hills even as the city burns. Run, but stay awake. Be alert, keep watching, and keep preaching because hope, restoration, and redemption is coming. He goes on to say this in verse 24. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. If you remember just a couple chapters earlier, Jesus cursed the fig tree because it wasn't doing its appointed job. It says, remember this lesson, as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when these things happen, you'll know that it's near. It's right at the door. And then here's the point. He says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's how we know that he's talking about an event in history and not the second coming. Because if he's talking about the second coming, not only was he a little bit wrong, he's off by like a couple thousand years at least, (laughs) right? He'll go on in a minute to say, even I can't tell you when it's gonna happen. Only God the Father knows. But some of you standing here will see it. So think about it. At the moment of Jesus' death, the sun turned dark. The entire cosmos shook. The power of God was hanging on a Roman cross in a backdrop of clouds. The judgment of God deserved by Jew and Gentile alike, judgment that every image bearer deserves because of our rebellion from and our rejection of God. That judgment came down, not on Jew and Gentile, not on me and you, not on the stones of some building, it came down on the person of Jesus. He took that judgment for me. He took it for you. In his resurrection, he returned in power and glory, calling his church together from the ends of the earth. After he ascended to heaven, the book of Acts tells us that the faithful were called together from all the nations, thousands being added to the church every day. And then the book of Acts continues to tell story after story of the trials, the persecution, even the murders of Jesus' followers. 
And it tells of their faithful witness to the gospel through it all. And then in roughly 70 AD, 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem lied in ruins. It was destroyed by a Roman army led by a man named Titus, who was the son of Caesar Vespasian. There's a first century historian named Josephus who writes all about it, and he will tell you Jesus was right. It was truly terrible. Nobody wanted to be in that city when that happened. For 40 years, think about it. For 40 years, trials, persecution, and destruction. The first generation of Jesus' followers saw it all. This chapter, it ends with a reminder that's as important for us today as it was for the disciples and the first followers of Jesus. Like he's describing to them what some of them will experience, what they will see with their own eyes, but he can't tell them exactly when it'll happen. So instead, he tells them what they're supposed to do as they watch and wait. And this is where the Bible study turns into preaching. All right, this is where we find our so what for today. Listen to this. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know what time it'll come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each assigned their task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Now listen to the language he uses, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Okay, remember, Jesus says this to his disciples just a day or two before he is arrested. When is he arrested? In the middle of the night. He says this to them a day or two before his crucifixion and what happened at his crucifixion when his disciple Peter denied him three times. A rooster crows. Three days later, when, he raised, when he's raised from the dead, he walks out of that tomb at dawn. <laughs> I think about what Jesus' disciples saw over the next few days as they watched. They watched as among the stones of that temple structure, the cornerstone of God's plan for salvation, Jesus was arrested. God was put on trial by man for blasphemy against God. Then he was taken outside the stone walls of that city to be beaten and crucified on a Roman cross. And we're going to hear about this in greater detail on Good Friday, but when Jesus breathed his last breath, what happened? The skies grew dark. It was the middle of the day, and all of a sudden, it was as if it was night. There was a great earthquake. The curtain inside that temple tore in two from top to bottom. In that moment, the gospel even makes its way to Roman soldiers to Gentiles, representatives of the nations. There's one of them in particular who speaks the truth that Israel was designed to proclaim. He says, truly, this was the son of God. Now listen, the temple of God wasn't destroyed in 70 AD by a Roman army. The temple buildings were. But the temple of God, the person of Jesus, the place where God was fully present here on earth, that temple was destroyed the day that he hung on a cross between two thieves. 
And when they saw it, what, is his, what did his disciples do? They ran. They abandoned him. And listen, every, like every Lent and Easter, I'm telling you, my entire life, I've thought about that moment and I've thought about his disciples abandoning them and I've really judged them for that. I thought how terrible until this year when I started asking the question, what would I do? And then until the past couple of weeks when I started reading this passage, what did he tell them? When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the place where it does not belong, what are they supposed to do? Run. Like what would you call the savior of the world crucified outside the very temple that was built to proclaim his name to the ends of the earth? What would you call that? And what would you do? You see, the good news is that after that abomination, the true temple, the body of Jesus, was raised in power and glory on the third day. An act of redemptive power that not only turned Israel and Rome upside down, it turned all of human history upside down. But most importantly, it overturned death itself. Forty days later, the disciples will watch as the resurrected and glorified Christ, the Son of God, ascends to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Ten days after that, the Spirit descends upon his followers, giving them the power and the authority, the courage, the strength, the words, so that they can serve as his witness to Jew and Gentile, to governors and kings. You see, the temple building was never the point. It was always just a shadow of a much larger reality. The temple structure was never the point. It was built simply to point the way. It had failed in its job. It's no longer necessary. And we no longer need a building to point the way. Do you know why? Because of you. Sam said the church. Now we have a people empowered by God to do the job. Now look, this entire series, as we've read these stories about Jesus and his disciples leading up to his death and resurrection, we've been asking the question, like, what would you do? His disciples, they come off as, honestly, they kind of come off as idiots sometimes. Like, they see what's happening and we judge him. And we're like, how crazy? But seriously, if you were there, what would you do? Like, would you really understand? But now, 2,000 years later, now that we know who Jesus is and what he has done, today, after we've heard these intense and really dramatic words, the question changes, what will you do? What will you do? That's right, Brian. (laughs) And listen, it's really tempting to sit in front of our favorite cable news channel, scroll through our feeds or get on our social media apps. And when we do that, it's very tempting to just feel overwhelmed by all of it. You guys find much good news on there? Earthquakes, famines, floods, droughts, injustice, violence, wars, and threats of wars. Literally every day. They'll report that news to you and then some will claim that they have the answers. They'll stand up and assure you that everything's gonna get better as long as we pick the right people and pass the right laws. But then others will argue against them and and they'll start to make things worse by just stoking our fears, by trying to turn us against one another. That's what we're consuming each and every day. I know it feels like it's getting worse. Media, technology, it makes us hyper aware of everything that's happening all around the world. It feels like it's getting worse. I don't know, maybe it is. Honestly, it doesn't matter because either way, what does Jesus say? 
He says, watch out that you're not deceived. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. There will be earthquakes and famine. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. So be on your guard and don't worry. That way you can stand firm to the end. All that because the gospel must be preached. What if we are so caught up in our worry and fear about what if that we're abdicating our responsibility to to do the only job he gave us? What happened to the temple when it refused to do the only job it was given? Mark 13 is telling us that through it all, Jesus' disciples are instructed to do one thing, share the gospel everywhere you go. Matthew's gospel says, go, make disciples of all nations. Luke's gospel is followed by the book of Acts. Luke wrote both of those. Luke says it like this. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the only thing that Jesus' followers were told to do. So what will you do? Yes, the world is coming to an end. (laughs) Eventually. (laughs) And we're closer to the end today than we were yesterday, right? We'll be even closer to it tomorrow. That's just how time works. But y'all, it's not our job to sit around and speculate, to fear and fret about what the next piece of bad news might mean. It's not our job just to sit around and wait to see what happens. It's not our job to worry about bad news. It's our job to tell a lost world some really good news about a savior who loves them so much that he died for them. A savior so powerful that even death itself was overcome. Now listen, like I have the privilege of meeting with many of you every week, different Bible studies and discussions that we have. And I hear fear in your voices. Like I hear your concern for our nation, for our world, older people concerned for the younger generations. I hear you and I get it. There are reasons to be concerned. Things are getting weird. (laughs) Seems like nothing works anymore. It might get worse. What will you do? Did Jesus commission us to sit around and worry? Did he tell us to be overwhelmed and paralyzed by our fear? Or did he commission us to be a light in the midst of that darkness? To be voices of hope for the lost and lonely, for the people who don't understand what's happening around us. Like even as the world is falling apart, we are called to be a people marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Y'all, those things, that is what a world desperately needs, especially as it keeps getting darker. And those are exactly the gifts that we've been given to bring. When Jesus left the world, his church, he left it as a gift. We haven't always acted that way. If we get to work, if we do our job, we will be a gift to a lost world. Because y'all, our hope does not lie in a broken world just getting a little bit better. Think about that. Our great hope is not that this place will just start getting a little better. Our hope lies in the coming of the kingdom of God once and for all. And yes, that means the end of the world as we know it. 
But the end of this world as we know it means the arrival of a glorious kingdom where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, no more earthquakes, no more famines, no more wars, or even the rumors of them. Y'all know what no more death means? No more taxes. Amen? <laughs> like that's our home. That's where we belong. Do you know why it feels so weird for Christians to live in the world today? This isn't where we belong. We don't fit. We don't make sense here. This isn't the reality for which we were created. His kingdom is. And through the chaos, Jesus is compelling us to stay awake, stay alert, stay focused, and stay on task. You've got work to do. Stop being distracted by the darkness. Yes, it's there. Now shine through it. Tell the whole world, bring as many people home as possible. What will you do? So really quickly, I have a challenge, uh, an encouragement, a suggestion, whatever, you take it for what it is. Um, this might seem a little radical, uh, but from personal experience, like I'm convinced that it'll make a difference if you're willing to give it a try. I wanna invite you to fast but not from food. There are, there are three weeks left in the season of Lent. I wanna invite you to spend this time fasting, not from food, but from media, from cable news, from feeds, and from social media apps. Now, relax, I'm not talking about a 100% fast. Oh, you wanna clap, that's fine, clap for it, that's good, very good. But listen, I'm not talking about a 100% fast because I don't want us to be uninformed, okay? So think of it like a intermittent fasting. <laughs> you guys know what that is? Um, I actually have been intermittent fasting since September. Um, I started that back then. You just eat at certain times of the day and I lost 20 pounds, which is really good news. But the most important thing is it's changed my chemistry. Like it's changed what I eat. It's changed the decisions I make. It's changed my ability to experience hunger and not start to stress out. If I don't have another meal for six hours, it's not a big deal. It took time, but it's trained me to do that. Not by abstaining from food altogether, but by just doing it at certain times. So do this fast, but just intermittently. Maybe take 30 minutes a day, three times a day. Maybe that's too much for some of you, but just a place to start. Allow yourself 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon, and 30 minutes in the evening. Get caught up on what's happening in the world around you but that's it. But here's the deal. Before you consume what's happening in the world around you, pray. Pray for yourself, for peace, for patience, no matter what story you're about to experience. Pray not only for yourself, pray for those reporting the news to you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be intervened and they would be overcome with the spirit of truth. <laughs> that they would not be telling one side or the other, but they would just be telling you what's going on. Pray for the people in the stories who are the victims of disaster and injustice and violence. And pray for the people who are causing it. Every time you consume, consume rooted in prayer. Let what you consume be the fuel for your prayers. It'll change the way you receive the information.
So I'm telling you from experience, um, it's been two years since I stopped watching cable news. I stopped after six months of the pandemic and leading up to the election. Um, today, I watch no more than 30 minutes a day. And it's been two years since I got off social media completely. The only thing I know is what my wife tells me. <laughs> I can tell you from my own experience, I am less angry, I'm less anxious, and I'm less afraid. I'm still a little angry, anxious, and afraid, <laughs> but much less. When you hear about whatever it is, don't be afraid. Pay attention, be alert, but no worry, no fear. Don't be alarmed, don't be an alarmist because no matter what the news is, you have a job to do, get to work. Let's pray. Father, the truth is that um, Honestly, this is easier said than done. Uh, we all know that. Um, and to be frank, it's easier for you, God, to not worry about this stuff because you have power and authority over all of it. So I think the only way that we can move forward, um, the only way that we can be the disciples you're calling us to be is by just submitting and trusting 100% on the power of your spirit because we, we probably we don't have the power within us on our own. And so I do pray this morning um, for a fresh sense of the presence of your spirit with us to guide us through just all the things that we face each and every day. Sometimes it's just things happening in the world. Sometimes it's things in our own lives. Like each of us are facing real hardships and pain. We pray for your presence in that, that the, the Lord who weeps, weeps with us, alongside us, comforting us and holding us through it, but reminding us that there is hope because those that we love and those that we lose, we're gonna see them again. Give us your peace and your comfort and your courage as we face all the things happening around us each day and make us laser focused. No more distractions. You've given us one job, to be a people who tell the world how much you love them. That's it. So for those of us who don't feel equipped, for those who feel like they don't have the answers to all the questions, for those who don't know what to say, remind us of what Jesus said in this chapter. Just be willing to speak. The Spirit will intercede and speak on your behalf. Help us to trust you all the way so that we can bring as many people home with us as possible. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful and saving name and all God's people said, amen. amen.